Hello, murder mystery and paranormal fans, and welcome to J.L. Deloge's The Photo Thief. My name's Jess, and this is Cam Cat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each episode of J.L. Delosier's The Photo Thief. I read this book when we first published it at CamCat, and it is still one I recommend to all my friends because it's just so good. I know you guys are going to love it too, so let's get into it. Detective Brennan is still grieving his daughter's death when he's sent to investigate a socialite's fatal fall down her Philadelphia mansion staircase. While signs point to an accident, The victim's daughter claims her mother was murdered. Her evidence? The epileptic young woman claims she can talk to the dead via a vintage collection of crime scene photographs displayed in the mansion's walls. Cold cases, she asks the detective to reopen based on her alleged otherworldly connection. Can she really speak to the dead? Are these delusions associated with her seizures? No one knows for certain. Spooky, right? Entangled in a wealthy family's long history of madness and murder, the detective faces a choice. Label the socialite's death an accident and save his career, or commit professional suicide for the chance to hear his daughter's voice one last time. It's a creepy, maybe even ghostly, tale about the mind-altering power of grief. What can it make you do? What can it make you believe? But that's not the only reason I love this book. No, The Photo Thief is one of those unputdownable books that makes you question what's true in this world and what's truly mad. It's a book to live in. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to The Photo Thief now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. The first two episodes of every book can always be found on CamCat Unwrapped, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. So subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped, and if you love this story, you can support the author by buying their audiobook. Our story opens with a mysterious diary entry. It seems as though the diary's owner is hallucinating. Or are they? We then shift to the streets of Philadelphia where Detective Dan Brennan bumps into an odd character at the library. And so our story begins. Don your detective hats, brush up on your knowledge of the paranormal, and let's dive into the photo thief together. CamCat Publishing presents The Photo Thief by J.L. Delosier Narrated by Jeffrey Kafer and Rachel L. Jacobs To the greatest generation, may we never forget. Excess of grief for the dead is madness. Xenophon 400 BC. Chapter 1. November 2nd. First journal entry. A single black and white photo can damage a man's mind if the image is powerful enough. A thousand can shred it beyond repair. That's what happened to Pap, I suppose. 
why he simply stopped locking the photo room as if it no longer mattered. The damage to him was done. Mine was about to begin. I didn't know that, of course, on that day six years ago when I first entered the photo room. Didn't know the images held the power to ruin me, too, if I failed to answer the questions they posed. Mysteries from years before I was born. Pictures of grisly crimes still unsolved despite today's modern methods of investigation. I needed, still need, to quiet their voices. But the questions they ask are difficult. I promised one I'd tell her story. I did. So far, no one's believed me. That's why I'm telling you. I was more child than teen then. Twelve, sheltered by wealth and religion and just beginning to rebel against my pap's strict Catholic dogma. The photo room's dangling padlock triggered an exhilarating surge of defiance. Heart pounding, I removed the skeleton key and crept inside with no idea what I might find. I honestly didn't care. Just knowing I wasn't supposed to be there was adventure enough. Even speaking of the photo room was a punishable offense in my house back then. I never saw anyone but Pap enter or leave. That's one of the reasons the first voice frightened me so. I killed a man, and I'm not sorry. Everyone has to eat. Delicate yet defiant, the female voice held a hint of sly amusement as if its owner knew my reaction in advance. I later learned her name was Ruth. Her voice echoed from nowhere and everywhere, from within the plaster walls, the floorboards, the ceiling. A chorus of others chimed in, clamoring inside my head. Their jumbled words swelled in intensity, pounding at my skull as if trying to crack it open and set themselves free. The brass chandelier flickered and dimmed. A faint odor like that of a candle wick violently snuffed into smoke stung my nose. I stumbled toward the door I'd closed quietly behind me, only to awaken on the room's parquet floor sometime later, lying in a puddle of lukewarm urine with no memory of how I'd gotten there. My stiff, cold muscles implied hours had passed. Golden rays from the setting sun streamed through the lead glass windows, highlighting the fine layer of dust swirling in the air. Dozens of eyes stared blankly at me from the crinkly black and white photos taped to the wall. Whole families, most of them dressed in their Sunday best, bore witness to my fear and shame. The voices were gone. The padlock was set on the inside. I gawked at it, my confused state not allowing me to wrap my brain around what had transpired and why or how someone would lock me into the photo room alone. My pap pounded outside the door until the padlock swayed. I blinked, 
struggling to clear my foggy mind and focus on something other than my wet undies and the heavy object resting in my right palm. He repeated my name, his gruff voice growing frantic and hoarse. Even when he bellowed my scarcely used given name, I lay frozen in place. Confused, but calm. Caged, but not captive. For I knew something my pap didn't. In my right hand, I held the key. Chapter Two Detective Dan Brennan paced the pavement outside the Free Library of Philadelphia. Vibrations from a passing city bus triggered the building's revolving door to slowly spin as if pushed by a ghostly patron. Sunlight bounced off its shiny glass surface, rendering him temporarily blind. A dark cloud extinguished the glare. He stepped toward the door, turned away, and then spun around again, nearly dropping the stack of picture books cradled in his arms. Get yourself together, man. Just get it done. He took a deep breath and hurtled through the door, lurching to a halt in front of the main circulation desk. The librarian looked up from her computer. Her ready smile froze, her eyes flashed with recognition. The smile slowly disappeared. Brennan's frenzy fizzled into an awkward silence. He dropped the colorful pile onto the desk and backed away. The librarian stood and swept the books off the desk, tossing them into the return bin as if the mere sight of their childish covers was painful. You didn't have to bring them back, not so soon anyway. I, I know how difficult this must be. They were overdue. Besides, she would have wanted me to, so some other kid can enjoy them. You know how much she loved it here. Best little library in the city. He glanced over her shoulder at the far corner where a cozy alcove had been turned into a fantasy land for children, complete with beanbag chairs, painted unicorns, and grinning winged dragons. He had a photograph of Elle in her purple dress, the one with the polka dot she deemed fabulous, standing there in front of a life-sized elf if there was such a thing. He cleared his suddenly thick throat. I imagine I won't be back for a while. Thanks for... For everything. He spun on his heels, sensing too late the petite figure passing behind his back. They collided and a flurry of papers floated to the floor. He cursed aloud. The librarian's eyebrows shot skyward. Sorry. Brandon cursed again silently this time and reflexively reached to steady the shoulders of a young woman he'd seen there before. She scowled and shirked away. Her scowl vanished at his despondent expression. She looked around the room as if searching for someone. The lump reappeared in his throat and he crouched to gather the scattered copies of vintage newspaper articles and their photos. His eyes narrowed as he examined the morbid images. Her research had drawn his attention before. Months earlier, when Kimo had cost his little girl her hair, this same young woman had been sitting at a corner table, its surface buried under mounds of similar papers. His bald daughter, entranced by the woman's long red hair, had dashed from his lap and stretched to the max on tippy toes, fingered the woman's auburn locks. Elle and the woman had exchanged smiles before he'd led his daughter away with a mumbled apology for the intrusion. He'd noticed the young woman several times since, but that was the only time he'd seen her smile. After observing the nature of her study, he understood why. 
the content never varied. A gruesome murder conveyed in the stark black and white print of a 1930s Philadelphia Inquirer, a cautionary tale of a life gone wrong, an investigation closed too soon due to the lingering depression, and after that, a looming world war. Heavy stuff for someone who appeared to be in her late teens. A subtle ahem interrupted his reflection. The young woman reached for the papers. May I have those back, please? Oh, sure. Brennan thrust the stack into her outstretched hands. He studied her solemn expression, curious about her macabre research despite his grief, despite being on the clock, despite everything including himself. A retired colleague once told him the difference between a good detective and a great detective was the energy to question everything. Once that energy waned, it was time to turn in your badge. The last six months of dealing with his daughter's illness had sapped his energy. Summer and autumn had disappeared in a rerun of hospital visits. Everyday activities, even getting out of bed in the morning, felt like a slog through dense fog. The days were getting darker and colder. Or maybe it was just him. His marriage was technically the first victim, cancer's collateral damage. His work had suffered as well, and he knew it. A few times he'd thought about transferring to a desk job. He'd even considered retiring early, really early, especially after he'd overheard a conversation about his soft emotions between two long-term colleagues in the break room. After Elle died, their wives brought him meatloaf, chicken casseroles. He thought they understood. Police work could be brutal sometimes, and no one was immune to the rough patches. The young woman with her arm full of vintage papers sparked his curiosity back to life. He dealt with a lot of young adults during his career and thought of them as clueless at best and surly at worst. Then again, in his line of work, he didn't usually deal with the salt-of-the-earth types either. But this girl oozed a finishing school and mainline money, from her formal polite mannerisms to the tips of her retro Mary Janes. She should be sipping lattes at a Starbucks on an Ivy League campus somewhere, not researching grisly murders at the local community library, even if it was in the best part of town. On impulse, he stuck out his hand. Detective Dan Brennan, Philly PD. She hesitated and took a step back. He sensed her sizing him up much the same way the local hoods did when he approached their corners. He didn't blame her. He must have passed the sleaze test, because she shifted the stack of papers to the crook of her left arm and shook his hand. Cassie. Cassie. Just Cassie. The scowl returned. She brushed by him to check out her items at the circulation desk. He loitered until she finished and walked with her to the revolving door. I couldn't help but notice on a couple of occasions that your research seems a little dark for someone your age. She shrugged. School project. You can do better than that. Excuse me? Your lie. He smiled to lessen the sting. I'm a detective, worked homicide for most of my career. I notice things for a living, which means I'm also an expert at detecting bullshit. You've been coming here at least once a week on varying days, but during school hours, and for a period longer than a standard school semester. You take notes in a leather-bound journal, which looks like it cost more than my gun. Whatever research you're doing, it's not for school, it's personal. Exactly. Personal means it's none of your business, just like your daughter's cancer was none of mine. Brennan winced. He'd heard the word cancer a thousand times over the last year, but it still hit him like a punch in the gut every damned time. She bit her lip. 
Sorry, that was rude. Please excuse me. She ducked between the glass panels and pushed the revolving door into motion. I should get home. It's supposed to rain. He caught up with her on the sidewalk. L. My daughter's name was L. She thought you were a princess and the library was your castle. She loved your hair and hoped... He coughed. And hoped hers would grow out red and curly like yours. Cassie flushed and averted her eyes. Your daughter's hair was black. I know. His lips curved into a sad smile. And straight as a soldier's spine, she was young enough to believe you could wish things true. They stood in silence until a crack of thunder made them jump. The sunshine vanished behind a veil of black clouds. What do you know? A thunderstorm in November. Brennan frowned. You'll have to run to beat the rain. You want me to hail you a cab or call an Uber or something? His phone jangled and he glanced at the number. When he looked up, Cassie had rounded the corner and quickly vanished from sight. I guess not. The first drops of rain fell and he ducked under the library's eaves to answer the call. Brennan. He rolled his eyes at the curt voice on the other end. I'm about ten blocks away. Text me the exact address. I'll be there in a few. When gifting a shitty assignment, his boss liked to call him herself. All his assignments had been shitty lately. His old partner, Tom, retired early spring, and Elle had gotten sick shortly thereafter. Her treatments were copious and lengthy, and he'd missed a lot of work. The captain hadn't bothered to assign him a new partner yet, and he hadn't bothered to ask. It was low on his priority list. The raindrops became a torrent. He turned up his collar and dashed to his car. His phone burbled the address. He wiped the rain off its screen and whistled. Locust and Third marked the border between Society Hill and Old City, two of Philly's swankiest neighborhoods. Maybe this assignment wouldn't be so bad after all. He could go for a simple jag jacking right about now, ease himself back into the workflow before handling something grittier. Grit usually meant blood. Blood meant death. He'd had enough of that to last for a long while. He sped west past Washington Square and floored it. The short trip took forever thanks to the oil and rain slick streets and the sudden proliferation of taxis as harried tourists scurried to escape the downpour. He cursed with each sudden stop, his language growing more colorful block after congested block. He tried to quit swearing once back when L was learning to speak. No reason to worry about that now. His vision blurred and he cranked the wipers to high. When he reached third, he eased the car to the curb and lowered his rain-streaked window. The neighborhood was old, old enough that the cobblestone roads and alleys bore weathered tracks for horse-drawn trolleys. Most were too narrow for two-way traffic, and many remained pedestrian only. Franklin's street lamps, rewired for electricity, lined the curbs and guarded the historic three-story row houses that ran the length of several city blocks. The real estate in this part of town cost more than he would earn in a lifetime, hell in three lifetimes. He grimaced. Old families with old money made for the worst cases. Way too many secrets and a reluctance to share. Way too much to lose. Family legacies to preserve. The layers of bullshit never ended. The house in question sat on an elite corner lot that intersected with one of the pedestrian-only alleys, the strobing red lights from a pair of police cruisers indicated the street was cordoned off ahead. He sighed and fumbled under his seat for an umbrella. He was hoofing it from here. He approached and flashed his badge. The junior officer, performing crowd control, nodded, sending a stream of water flowing off his hat. Everyone else is inside. 
Brennan grinned. Of course they are, everyone except you. Who'd you piss off? No one, at least I don't think so. I'm new on the force, paying my dues. Let me guess, your partner fed you that line. The officer nodded again. Brennan shook his head and climbed the wide stone steps leading to the front door. Above it, a stained glass transom glowed in shades of green and gold, lit from within by the brass chandelier hanging in the foyer. Security cameras mounted underneath the steep eaves swept in perfectly synchronized arcs. The tiny red light underneath each lens suggested they were functioning normally. He gave a perfunctory knock, walked in, and stopped underneath the enormous chandelier to gape. It was as if he'd stepped back in time. To his right, a seven-foot-tall grandfather clock ticked the time as it had for the past hundred years. Through the mahogany pocket doors to his left, empty leather chairs faced a fireplace flanked by built-in shelves overflowing with books. The hush, broken only by the ticking of the clock, felt heavy as if the windows, protected by thick iron bars as was typical for the neighborhood, refused to permit the slightest breeze or whisper to enter. Three generations of eyes glared at him from the oil paintings lining the papered wall of the foyer. The hairs on his arms stood on end. He was alone. A burst of chatter from a police radio echoed down the elaborately carved grand staircase, shattering the spell. He exhaled and strode forward, breaking into an awkward jig as his wet soles slipped on the marble tile. The sturdy bottom newel kept him from hitting the ground. He grabbed the banister for support and placed his free hand on his gun. Even the house was out to get him. He hated this case already. He tilted his head and stared up three steep stories. Thirteen steps took him to the first 90-degree landing. He rounded the corner and stopped. Long, slender fingers dangled over the second-floor landing. Another step and the contorted body of a woman came into view. She lay face up in a pool of congealed blood. So much blood it had streamed onto the tread below. A pair of CSIs circled her, snapping pictures like the paparazzi. Brennan placed his foot on the next step. It creaked, announcing his presence. The younger of the two investigators crouched by the woman's head and focused his lens on the victim's battered skull. He paused his grisly duties long enough to cock his thumb toward the third flight of stairs. Yo, Dan, it's been a while. I was hoping you'd get this case. Senior officer's up there interviewing the only witness. Officer Cortez, I think. Watch your step. They might be a little slick, as you can tell. His thick glasses slid down the bridge of his nose, and he pushed them in place with a shrug of his shoulder. Welcome back, by the way. I missed our daily swim break. Me too, Jim. Thanks. It's good to be back. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Hell's childish chant echoed in his ears. Brennan climbed the remaining stairs. Pressing his back against the banister, he awkwardly skirted along the edge of the crowded landing. What's the story? He studied the woman's delicate features. Mid-forties, he guessed, with green eyes and auburn hair. She was lovely even in death, if you could ignore the god-awful mess. Dunno yet. Pretty obvious she fell down the stairs backward. Jim lowered the camera and snapped on a pair of nitrile gloves. With delicate precision, he rotated her slim neck to display the extent of the damage. Gray matter and bits of bone had oozed into her hair, matting it into bloody clumps. The question is whether she had help. She doesn't look much older than you, and people your age don't typically reverse swan dive down the stairs. We'll know more after the medical examiner assesses for occult injuries related to the fall. 
X-rays, toxicology. She'll get the full deal. Her family will demand it, I'm sure. His lips twitched into a humorless grin. Unless they did it, of course, then they'll want a quick and quiet burial. Of course, Brandon sighed. Jim twisted the woman's head again and a pair of gold chains slid across her neck. The first bore a petite cross. The second held a heart-shaped cladal locket. Brennan's stomach clenched. He'd given a similar locket, albeit smaller and likely less expensive, to his ex when L was born. The camera flashed and the gold locket sparkled in the sudden burst of light. Brennan looked away. She looks familiar, but I guess they all do after a certain point. This one should. His picture's complete, Jim stood and stretched his back. She and her husband graced the society section of the city paper at least once a month. A charity ball here, a major donation there. Her granddaddy owns it. I'm sure that helps. He grinned. Leland Dolan. You may have heard of him once or twice. Jesus, is he still alive? I know he had a stroke a while back. I assumed he died. He must be... What, ninety by now? At least? Brennan glanced up the last flight of stairs. Leland Dolan was a local legend. In the 1930s, he'd worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer as an amateur photographer and teenaged photo thief, tasked with breaking into the homes of murder victims and stealing family photographs to run alongside articles about the sensational and often grotesque crimes. The penny per photo salary wasn't much, but it kept him from starving until the war cured the depression and sent him to the Battle of Okinawa. Sergeant Dolan's breaking and entering skills served him well. First, he escaped from a notorious Japanese POW camp. Then, after regaining his strength, he broke back in, launching a daring covert rescue operation that freed a dozen fellow Marines. He returned to Philly a hero. A media darling, Dolan used his contacts to land a job as a reporter for the Inquirer's chief rival, where he earned a reputation as a hard-nosed hustler who refused to take no for an answer. Eventually, with grit and savvy investments, he bought the paper and much, much more. His empire was built on hard work and the American dream. Brennan straightened his damp tie. I shook his hand once at a Veterans Day ceremony back when I was still in blue. We had a brief conversation. You know what he told me? Can't venture a guess. He told me the next time we met I'd better have polished my shoes. Jim smirked at the worn black leather on his colleague's feet. I wouldn't worry about it. He's old and probably senile by now. Who said I was worried? There's nothing wrong with my shoes. They're just getting broken in. Besides, he has more important things to worry about than my footwear. Like a dead woman on his stairs. Brandon hopped over the corpse and plodded up the final flight to the third floor. The grandfather clock in the foyer told the hour. Its resonance filled the stairwell with a mournful dirge, the notes keeping pace with Brennan and his slow ascent to the third floor. The air grew steadily warmer and more humid. Beads of sweat dampened his forehead. He swiped them away with the back of his hand. Jim was right. He needed to get back to his daily swim in the precinct's pool. His health had suffered along with L's. He paused at the top to catch his breath. A long hallway, darkened by cherry paneling and dressed in a threadbare carpet, ran the length of the third floor. The heavy doors at each end were closed. One was padlocked, but the door straight ahead was ajar. Brennan peered over its threshold and was punished by the smell of stale urine and old flesh. He nudged the wooden door the rest of the way open with his foot. 
It creaked on its hinges, a cry of solidarity, perhaps, with the room's elderly occupant. Officer Cortez looked up from her notepad and nodded. Detective Brennan, we were just finishing up. She crouched next to an unshaven man hunched in a damask-covered chair. A side table held a stack of newspapers and an old-fashioned radio. A wheeled walker rested in front. She raised her voice. Mr. Dolan, this is Detective Dan Brennan. We're going to step out so I can brief him on what you've shared with me thus far. He may need to ask you a few more questions. Is that okay? The old man straightened to stare at Brennan's face. His eyes narrowed and he allowed his gaze to drift to Brennan's feet as he sagged into his former position. Do whatever you need to do. The bastard remembered him. Of course he did. Leland Dolan's eyes had lost their sparkle thanks to discs of milky white film, not cataracts, but Argus and Nihilus, a sign of extreme age, a coroner friend once told him. But behind those cloudy green eyes, the veteran's shrewd mind had not diminished. Self-made men, particularly one with steely determination to refuse help from Philly's Irish mob, never forgot anything. Favors cast, debts owed, even shoes unpolished. That kind of ferocious instinct didn't dull with age. Still, it had been twenty stinking years. Got a guy a break already. The senior officer motioned for Brennan to follow her into the hall. She flipped her notebook to the first page. The victim is Aaron Dolan McConnell, age 44, Mr. Dolan's granddaughter. Every morning around nine, she helps him shave and dress and walks him to the elevator to go downstairs for breakfast. A private duty nurse takes over Mr. Dolan's care after lunch. Elevator? Brennan peered down the dimly lit hallway. The panel door at the end is an elevator in disguise. She sighed as Brennan walked the length of the hall to see for himself. He slid his hands over the door surface. It rattled, the metallic sound muted by the heavy wood veneer. His fingers probed the wall to its right until he found a seam. With the tap of his gloved finger, the burled panel slid open to reveal a single button. Guess it only goes down. He punched it and the cherry door separated. Released from its facade, the cage of wrought iron bars shuddered and lurched, its intricate decorative skulls parting with a clang to reveal a service elevator large enough to hold a grand piano and bend some. Brennan poked his head inside. The thick bars tapered to a gilded domed ceiling. The wide plank floor was waxed to a high sheen. I think this thing's bigger than my bathroom. It's definitely cleaner. Cortez shook her head. Satisfied? I could have saved you the time. We already processed it. Find anything? Nothing worthwhile. She glanced at her notes. As I was saying, Aaron was late this morning. By ten, Mr. Dolan was starving and, from the sounds of it, irritable. He was about to call Aaron on her cell when he heard a scream followed by a terrible crash. He found her lying at the bottom of the steps and called 911. When we arrived, he was sitting on the step next to her, holding her hand. He had slid down the stairs on his butt to reach her. Why didn't he take the elevator? The officer scowled. How would I know? Maybe he couldn't walk the length of the hall fast enough with his walker. Maybe he panicked. The man broke into a POW camp. He doesn't seem the type to panic. That was a million years ago, and he wasn't trying to save his granddaughter back then. People react differently when it's their family, their blood at stake. She snapped her notebook shut. Ask him yourself. I'm done here anyway. I'll start my preliminary report and email it to you once I get back to the station. Brennan nodded, his mind already abuzz with questions. 
A surge of anticipation more powerful than any caffeinated beverage honed his focus. He'd forgotten how good it felt to work an interesting case. And any case featuring the renowned Leland Dolan was automatically interesting. A tap on Dolan's door yielded no response. Brennan pushed it open and lingered at the threshold, waiting for Dolan to acknowledge his presence. The old man, lips pursed and breathing heavily, had moved from the armchair to the seat of his walker, which was now positioned in the middle of the room. He'd been working his way toward the door. Brennan shut it behind him. I would recommend you stay here until... until the investigators finish clearing the scene. If you need something, I'd be happy to get it for you. Silence. He cleared his throat and spoke louder. I want you to know how sorry I am for your loss. Is that so? Dolan's speech held a slight slur, a remnant of his prior stroke. His milky eyes met Brandon's and his thin lips curled as if he'd planned to add something snide but thought better of it. His gruff voice trembled. Thank you. He looked down, hiding his face. Is there someone you'd like me to call to come sit with you? Brandon strained to recall everything he knew about the Dolan family tree. He remembered the old man's wife had died of breast cancer shortly after the Veterans Day shoe-polishing incident. Her funeral had been the social event of the season. But as far as children... God only granted me one son. The Viet Cong took him away. Dolan answered the detective's unspoken question. He had one daughter. She's lying downstairs. There has to be someone you'd like me to call. Her husband Ryan is a hotshot surgeon at Jefferson Hospital. But I'm sure he already knows. Dolan's voice hardened, triggering Brennan's radar. Why's that? Because your officer sent someone to the hospital to tell him. The old man raised his face. His stare, as cold and unblinking as those in the family portraits, gave Brennan a chill. You can tell a lot about a man from simple things like the way he stands, the roughness of his hands, the words he chooses, even the shoes on his feet. His eyes drifted south. I can assess a man's character in 30 seconds flat. You believe that? Yes, sir, I do. It's a survival skill. Helps in the boardroom, too, just like recognizing faces. I never forget one even if I want to. Dolan leaned forward. I remember you. Brennan shifted on his feet. His worn soles squeaked. The old man's lips twitched in a faint smile. You come from humble stock, Detective Brennan. Nothing to be ashamed of. I did too. You earned your promotion the old-fashioned way through hard work. I can respect that. You're good people, as we used to say. A little soft-hearted for my liking, though. Thank you, sir. This conversation had veered way off course. Brennan attempted a redirect. Do you have any theories as to what happened here today? I don't need any goddamned theories. I know what happened to my Erin. What? Her husband. The bastard killed her. Chapter 3 by the time Brennan finished documenting Dolan's tale of infidelity and murder, the pair of CSIs had finished processing the scene, and a hydraulic stretcher occupied most of the second-story landing. He leaned against the wall beside Dolan's bedroom door and waited for a path to clear. The stifling air grew suddenly cooler. 
The hair clinging to his damp forehead fluttered. Someone had finally turned on the AC. He scanned the plaster ceiling for vents. If present, they were as expertly disguised as the elevator. The gurney shuddered as the EMTs hoisted the body into place. Beneath the metallic clatter and the EMT's quiet conversation, Brennan detected a faint tinkling. He tipped his head and focused. Music. A piano, maybe. He leaned closer to Dolan's bedroom door. The elusive melody swelled at random intervals, wafting throughout the hallway from the elevator to the padlocked room at the opposite end and back to where he stood between the door and the top of the stairs. Then it was gone, stopping as abruptly as it had begun and taking the cool air with it. Brandon frowned and brushed the hair off his forehead. Nice to know that transistor radio, almost as old as Dolan himself, still worked. They don't make things like they used to, people included. The crowded landing cleared, leaving two EMTs and just enough room for Brennan to escape to cooler quarters. As he eased past, he stole a final glance at the victim's gray face. An EMT zipped the body bag, sealing Aaron McConnell inside an impermeable coffin of thick black plastic. His brow furrowed. He'd seen her face before, and it wasn't from the society section of the newspaper. The oil paintings. He jogged down the steps to the foyer. Three generations of Dolans, men with grim smiles and women with hauntingly sad eyes, maintained a silent vigil over the entry. He paused in front of the most modern of the three. Aaron, surrounded by a halo of light, stiffly cradled a rosy-cheeked infant in an elaborate lace christening gown. Her husband hovered at her back, his smug expression partially hidden in the shadows. His hand squeezed her delicate shoulders with enough force to wrinkle the fabric of her emerald green dress. In a few strokes of oil, the artist had captured the essence of Aaron's marriage. The painter's talent failed to surprise. Leland Dolan could afford the best. The rattling gurney at his rear urged him to move along. Brennan stepped into the rain. Officer Cortez lingered on the stone steps. He raised an eyebrow. You're getting wet. I thought you were heading to the station. I was. She nodded and he followed her line of sight. Across the narrow street, a bedraggled figure, shoulders and chin hunched, clothes drenched, stood shivering in the rain. Pulses of red light bounced off the wet cobblestones and sliced across her face, highlighting a pair of impossibly wide eyes, pupils dilated despite the glare from the cruiser strobing LEDs. Strands of auburn hair clung to her face, but she didn't bother to brush them away. I thought she was just rubbernecking and yelled for her to move along. Cortez moved to the side to allow the gurney to pass. She acted like she didn't hear me. Girl's not right. I was about to go check on her, see if she needs assistance. The laden gurney clattered down the weathered stone steps on its way to the ambulance, and the girl finally blinked. Her mouth widened to match her eyes. Her lips moved, but produced no sound. The puzzle pieces locked into place. Green eyes, curly red hair like her mother's. Brennan waved both arms, trying to redirect the girl's attention from the gurney's morbid contents. Cassie, Cassie McConnell. Arms outstretched like a zombie's, Cassie stepped into the uneven street. As her foot left the curb, her eyes rolled and she collapsed, arms and legs flailing. Her back arched, her head pounded the wet cobblestone. Once, twice, the rhythmic thrashing continued. Brennan winced at the loud cracks of bone on stone. He dashed across the street, cradled her head to absorb the blows, and yelled over his shoulder to Cortez. Get the paramedics. She's having a seizure. Chapter 4 
Jefferson Hospital's emergency department underwent extensive renovations in the 1990s, prompting employees and locals alike to refer to the inaptly posh unit as Trump Triage. But the brass handrails quickly lost their gleam, sullied by thousands of dirty hands while on busy Friday nights, the white marble floors collected lurid splashes of red. During the slower midweek mornings, maintenance workers struggled to lift the stains. They ran their industrial-grade polishers up and down the halls, buffing away the bloody evidence of lives lost. Brennan, absorbed by their Sisyphean efforts, loitered in the waiting area, lost in the hypnotic whir of the buffer's circular brushes. An hour passed before the ER's glass doors whooshed open and Cassie's father arrived on scene. Beyond a smattering of steely gray at his temples and what appeared to be a recently acquired tan, Dr. Ryan McConnell's appearance had changed little from the time of the family portrait hanging in the Dolan family mansion. A short woman in a black suit and sensible heels, a hospital administrator, Brennan surmised, struggled to keep pace. Next to her, a uniformed officer nodded at Brennan and subtly rolled her eyes. The officer gestured toward Brennan. Dr. McConnell, this is Detective, where's my daughter? The officer glanced over her shoulder at the array of rooms positioned in a semicircle around the nurse's bay. I don't know. She's in room six. I checked on her a few minutes ago. She has a hematoma, I think the ER doc called it, on the back of her scalp. No cuts or internal bleeding. She's stable and sleeping off the meds they gave her. He says she'll be fine. Brandon extended his hand. Detective Brennan, Philly PD. I was assigned to investigate your wife's death. I'm so sorry for your loss. He paused, anticipating the usual polite murmuring of thanks. None ensued. He cleared his throat. I know this has been a terrible day, but given the circumstances of your wife's death, I have to ask you some questions. The administrator mumbled an excuse and hurried away. Dr. McConnell gave Brennan's hand a perfunctory shake. You can ask your questions later. I need to check on Cassie. He strode to the nurse's station and demanded to speak to the emergency room physician monitoring his daughter's care. The officer shook her head. Have fun with this one. If it helps, he's been in the operating room since seven this morning, so he wasn't home at the time of death. The administrator confirmed his schedule, but she deferred any further questions to the hospital's lawyers. He's already contacted his personal attorney as well. Acting a wee bit guilty, if you ask me. Brennan shrugged. We're not sure if his wife's death is even a crime. She could have fainted her way down the stairs. Besides, calling a lawyer is par for the course with these types. I swear they talk to their lawyers more than their wives. The emergency room physician patted his colleague on the shoulder and McConnell walked toward room six. Brennan crossed the hall to join him. McConnell frowned, but before he could speak, the curtain jerked open with the harsh clack of metal on metal. A nurse exited, thermometer in hand. Cassie's red hair glowed like a crown of fire against the stark white sheets. Nodding, she moved her lips almost imperceptibly, as if in silent prayer, and stared heavy-lidded at the pale green wall dividing her room from the next, ignoring the men as they entered. A thin shriek, tremulous with age, emanated from the room next door. She suffers, Cassie murmured. Probably has a kidney stone. Her father flashed a tight smile. Glad to see you're awake. I was beginning to worry. Cassie jerked, shifting her attention to her father. She scowled and opened her mouth, then bit her lip as if having second thoughts. The screaming intensified. Cassandra! Cassandra, help me! Where are you? The elderly woman's shrieks degenerated into a constant moan. Brennan McConnell shared startled looks. 
A younger voice attempted to soothe. Mom, I'm right here. You're okay. I'm here. The door to the room slid shut and the voices disappeared amid the buzz of the busy department. Popular name, McConnell muttered. The wall-mounted surgical light flickered. Cassie closed her eyes. What happened? You had another seizure. I know that. McConnell's eyes narrowed at his daughter's prickly tone. Cassie heeded the subtle warning by softening her voice. Challenging her father in public was apparently a mortal sin. I meant what happened to Pep. He was fine when I left this morning. She picked at the tape, securing the IV needle to her right hand. She doesn't know. Brennan pictured the glistening body bag, raindrops coating its dark surface like a fine veil of tears. It made sense for Cassie to assume it contained her elderly great-grandfather. Brennan would have assumed the same. He glanced at Ryan McConnell's impassive face. The surgeon clapped his daughter's hand in his. She twitched at his touch, and her heart monitor's steady beep increased to a frantic rate. Cassie, your pap is fine. It was your mother. He took a deep breath. She fell down the stairs. Cassie's face blanched and she sagged into the bed. No, that's not possible. You're lying to me again. You know I can tell. Why do you always lie? The heart monitor flashed an alarm. Cassie's pupils dilated and Brennan tensed. She'd worn that same dazed expression before starting to seize. Her gaze drifted to her father's face, her emerald eyes focusing on his cool baby blues. She whispered her words hoarsely, as if each syllable required tremendous effort. Ruth will tell me the truth. McConnell dropped Cassie's hand and silenced the alarm. You're upset and confused. So am I. It's a normal reaction. His steady voice and clinical assessment belied any such emotion. I've canceled my OR schedule for this afternoon. As soon as you're cleared for discharge, I'll take you home. We'll get through this together. Cassie ignored him and rolled onto her side to curl into the fetal position. Brennan observed the exchange from a respectful distance, troubled more by the strange father-daughter dynamic than Dr. McConnell's composure. He'd expect a surgeon to have nerves of steel and a calm facade, thanks to years of experience at breaking bad news. Brennan had been on the receiving end of such news once, when Elle's tumor was found to be inoperable. That doctor's voice was calm too, although her kind eyes had misted with tears. McConnell's eyes were dry. The surgeon gestured for Brennan to follow him into the hall. He drew the thin curtain separating Cassie from the chaotic emergency room. Are you sure your questions can't wait? I just told my only child that her mother's dead, for Christ's sake. I know and I completely understand, but Mr. Dolan and Cassie were the last two people to see your wife alive. Memories fade quickly and for good reason. I'm obligated to ask a few basic questions. If I don't ask them now, I'll have to do so later while you're preparing for the funeral. There's never a good time in a situation like this. Better to just get it over with. McConnell drew a shaky breath and ran a hand through his wavy hair. Fine, but make it quick. I'm going to speed up Cassie's discharge and get her out of here. She's had dozens of seizures in the past. There's nothing special about this one. He stormed down the hall to the nurse's station. Except for her mother's death, of course. Brandon watched a gaggle of nurses, male and female, fawn over the handsome surgeon while expressing their condolences. Even amid tragedy, the man oozed the charismatic assurance typical of those born to lifelong privilege. Behind the ugly blue and white curtain, an IV pump beeped and whirred. 
Brennan pushed the curtain aside just in time to see Cassie, her focus restored, deactivate the pump with a jab of her slender finger. She pulled the needle out of her arm and applied pressure with her opposite hand. He stepped into the room. I don't think you should be doing that. Yeah? See those two tiny bags of fluid? One's lorazepam. They always order lorazepam. I'd bet the other is phenobarb. Okay. Lorazepam's always enough. If my mom's with me, that's all I get. But if my father arrives first, and since he works here, he usually does, he insists on the phenobarb cocktail. He likes me nice and snowed. Why? Maybe because I'm less likely to say or do something embarrassing. You should ask him that question, not me. She rubbed her droopy eyelids. It'll probably get worse now that mom... Mom's... Her voice quavered and she looked away. I met you at the library today. You're a detective. Yes, yes you did. And yes I am. I wasn't sure you'd remember. I remember everyone I meet. Coincidence is strange, isn't it? Very strange. We've had a lot of it today, haven't we? Brennan pulled the room's low and chair closer to her bed. Cassie, I've been assigned to investigate the circumstances surrounding your mother's death. My father said she fell down the stairs. That she did. But sometimes there's more to the story and sometimes there isn't. Do you feel up to answering a few questions? I'm postictal, you know. Which means what? She recited what sounded like a textbook definition. Postictal, the altered state of consciousness after an epileptic seizure lasting between 5 and 30 minutes, but sometimes longer in the case of more severe seizures like mine, marked by drowsiness, confusion, and other disorienting symptoms. My father would be quick to point out it makes me an unreliable historian. In your profession, the term would be witness. Huh, is that right? Brendan pretended to ponder the information before leaning forward in his chair. I'll take my chances. You seem pretty reliable to me. He lowered his voice. Do you know of anyone who might want to hurt your mother? Cassie sighed and rested her head against the pillow. Like my father's girlfriend, maybe? Brennan blinked and pulled his phone from his pocket. That's a good start. Do you know her name? Amber Cervello. She was my tutor. I attended a private Catholic school until my frequent seizures became too severe. I made the nuns nervous. I've been homeschooled for the past six years. Even though my mom has had degrees in teaching in English literature, my father thought I needed a proper tutor. By proper, he meant young, blonde, and stacked. She lives in Fishtown somewhere. You said was. She was your tutor? I've known she's been banging my father for over a year, and it made me so angry. I turned 18 six months ago and graduated a month later. After that, I refused to even look in her direction. Petty, I know, but I put her out of a job, and I love it. They can hook up at her place, and they are based on my father's recent run of long hours. He's a liar and a cheat. My mother deserved better. Cassie's eyes brimmed with tears. She was too loyal for her own good, too good for him, that's for sure. Your grandfather doesn't seem to like him either. Great, grandfather. For a fleeting moment, Cassie's troubled expression relaxed into a smile. Perhaps an excellent judge of character. He told me the very same thing. Brennan returned the smile. Pap knew about my father's affair with Amber. I'm surprised he didn't kill them both. Pap had quite a temper when he was younger. Now that he's old and has had a stroke, everyone just calls him feisty. He hates that. Her smile faded. He thinks my father married Mom for the Dolan family money. Do you agree? I don't know. How could I? She closed her misty eyes. It doesn't matter what I think. My mom was happy, or at least she pretended to be. 
My father's happy with his fancy toys and mistress, and he ignores me when he can, which works for me. What about you? Are you happy? I can't drive, attend school, or have a social life. The flashing lights at a nightclub would kill me. I'm on seizure meds that would drop an elephant, and now that my mom is dead, I am stuck in a moldy old mansion with a megalomaniac father and my 98-year-old great-grandfather. What do you think? Brandon wasn't sure why he'd asked, other than a professional inclination to extract information whenever possible. He'd seen Cassie often enough, unsmiling, scrutinizing the library's archives with grim determination to predict her answer. And that was before her mother's unexpected demise. He pulled a business card from his wallet and slid it between her fingers. If I can do anything to help, or if you think of anything you'd like to add, give me a call. He slid the curtain open and paused with casual deliberation. I almost forgot. Who's Ruth? Cassie's eyes flew open. Ruth? She rolled onto her side, stretching her monitor leads to their limits and buried her forehead in the pillow. I don't know anyone named Ruth. The lady in the room next door is dying, I think. Brennan ignored her obvious deflection. You said Ruth would tell you the truth. If that's the case, I'd like to chat with her too. Post-ictal, unreliable witness, I warned you, remember? She burrowed her face deeper into the pillow. Her free hand fluttered in obvious dismissal. I need to sleep off these stupid meds. He stepped into the hall. The blue strobe light above the door to the next room flashed. A voice boomed through the speakers mounted on the walls. Code blue, ER room seven. Repeat code blue, ER room seven. The nurse's station emptied as the emergency room physician and his team rushed past Brennan into the neighboring room, yanking the curtain shut behind them. Cassie spoke over the din. We'll see each other again, won't we, Detective Brennan? I suspect we will. Across the bustling ER, Brennan locked eyes with Ryan McConnell. In fact, you can count on it. Chapter 5 November 4th Second Journal Entry When I was 13, Ruth decided I must have been named after the Greek oracle Cassandra. Horrified to learn I knew nothing of mythology, she taught me how the young priestess fell asleep in Apollo's temple and awakened to find serpents licking at her ears. Those flicking tongues gave her the gift of prophecy. Apollo cursed her to a lifetime of disbelief. When she shrieked warnings of horrors to come, her father labeled her mad and locked her away. The horrors she predicted came true. So you see, Cassandra, why you must never tell anyone about me and our little temple. They'll call you crazy. You'll be committed to an asylum where they'll shock you until your teeth rattle around in your pretty little head. Do you know what else they do to girls in those horrible places? I didn't. She told me. Her report, historically accurate or not, gave me nightmares that persist to this day. Now you know why I don't talk about Ruth. I tried once, before Ruth issued her warning. I told my mother about the photo room's voices. She refused to believe. Pap refuses to, at least out loud. 
I hear the strain in his voice, the inflection he uses when he's lying. I see something in his face, something that looks like fear. He believes more than he'll say. I broke my own rule at the hospital. I slipped and spoke Ruth's name. I was fuzzy from the seizure and the drugs and the shock of my mother's death. And I can't remember exactly what I said. A lie, I'm sure. Family secrets are meant to live and die with the family. But Ruth doesn't lie. Father, he likes to be called father, like some kind of masculine deity, pushed my mother down the stairs. Ruth confirmed my suspicions once I got home from the hospital. Now, you and I have to prove it. It won't be easy. Father has many faults, but he's not dumb. My special talent will help. I mentioned it once already, if you were paying attention. I never forget a face or voice. My brain notices and catalogs details, all of them. A neurodiversity-affirming therapist once called me a hyper-observant super-recognizer. It's a real thing. Look it up on the internet if you'd like. Sometimes it's useful, like when I awoke in the ER. Father spoke. I heard his guilt in every subconscious inflection. Then, once my vision cleared, I saw it in his face. When he grabbed my hand, that sealed the verdict. It wasn't his fake smile, I'm used to that. His smile never reaches his eyes, not when they're focused on me. But to hold my hand, something had to be terribly wrong, something more than just another seizure. A shiver of jitters joined the pounding in my head, and I wanted to puke. But I know better than to embarrass my father in front of anyone. My seizures embarrass him enough. Pap agrees father is to blame and believes you can prove it. He knows who to trust. A survival skill learned early and practiced often, he likes to say. If he trusts you, so do I. We're two of the same, my pap and I. He calls me his doppelganger. It's German, I think, for shadow or ghost. And as for Ruth, I trust her too. It's sad to say, but she's the only friend I've ever had. The fact that she's dead doesn't matter. She has no reason to lie. I still find it hard to say her name out loud. It catches in my throat, and her warnings of cursed prophecies and ghastly asylums ring in my ears. They'll lock you away, Cassandra. But what if I write what I cannot say? Maybe then, despite my name, Apollo's curse will have no power over my words. Magical thinking, I know. But what about this is real? Chapter 6 
The rain cleared by the weekend, allowing Aaron Doyle McConnell to be buried on a crisp autumn day. But the sun's golden rays lacked warmth, and a stiff wind off the Delaware River to the south sent fallen leaves swirling erratically over graves and headstones, a St. Vitus's dance of faded color that hinted at the bitter winter to come. Bare branches clacked like old, dried bones, and melancholy hung in the air. Five days from death to funeral had to be some kind of record. Brennan and Pete, the medical examiner, went way back. Brennan knew his methods. Pete was habitual to the point of neurosis. The autopsy would have been done within 24 hours and the tox screen sent for processing. But those screens can take up to a month to come back, depending on the backlog. Pete always awaited the results before issuing his report. No report meant no burial. But this time, Pete didn't wait. Brennan shivered under his heavy suede jacket. He leaned against his car, one in a row of many at the edge of the expansive private cemetery. In the next vehicle over, a paparazzo, eager to give grief a face, leaned from the driver's window and focused his telephoto lens. Brennan had left the soaring Cathedral Basilica of Saints Peter and Paul before the funeral mass's grand recessional, intent on securing a prime spot with a view of the Dolan family crypt, a giant hunk of moss-tainted granite as bleak as Dolan Mansion itself. Now, as the priest droned an additional graveside service, Brennan wished he'd stopped to take a leak and grab a cup of caffeine. He badly needed both. With a final shake of the thurible and a sprinkle of holy water, the service ended. A dozen tearful hugs and handshakes later, the attendees began ambling to their cars. Leland Dolan sat as upright as his age and wheelchair would allow, accepting the crowd's condolences with a curt nod of his head. Cassie, her curly hair secured in a demure braid, stood like a statue by his side, holding her great-grandfather's hand. Behind them, her father whispered to a man wearing an exquisitely tailored black suit with a green pocket handkerchief. They shared an unmistakable genetic resemblance. The man reached forward, spoke in Dolan's ear, and placed a bejeweled hand on Cassie's shoulder. She shrugged it off and wheeled her pap out of reach. Brendan frowned, zoomed his cell phone's camera to Max, and nodded. He'd have recognized Beck McConnell's craggy face even without his ears working homicide. The longtime head of Philly's Irish mob chose to stay quiet from a media standpoint, but his operations were nonetheless efficiently brutal and well-known to every detective in the Philly PD. A quick internet search confirmed Brennan's suspicions. Beck and Ryan were brothers. His investigation had taken a hard turn down Mafia Lane, and the pool of potential suspects just got ass deep. The detective shook his head. Dolan had steadfastly refused to go to bed with the mob, so the mob bedded his granddaughter instead. Brennan could only imagine her grandiose but undoubtedly tense wedding. Must have been a rip-snorting good time. His phone's ringtone, a civil defense siren, blasted an incoming text. He cursed and juggled it with cold fingers, searching for the volume. He glanced guiltily at the surrounding vehicles, and then across the broad swath of grass at the dispersing crowd for hostile glares or snickers. Cassie, cell phone in hand, stared him straight in the eye from fifty yards away. She gave her phone a subtle shake, and he looked at his screen. Come to the wake. He squinted into the sun. With the pageantry of the over-the-top funeral and the emotional crowd swirling around her, how had she noticed his presence? Granted, he wasn't exactly hiding, but still, he was just one face amid a gaggle of news reporters and paparazzi. 
His phone, now on mute, vibrated a second alert. She'll be there. His numb fingers fumbled out a response. She who, Amber or Ruth? He shielded his eyes from the glare and watched her craft her response. Before she'd finished, however, her father intervened. Between their hand gestures and his stormy expression, Brennan surmised Ryan McConnell objected to Cassie texting at her mother's funeral. Cassie shoved her phone into a tiny black purse and propelled her pap toward an idling stretch limo not far from the family crypt. The driver hurried to help Dolan transfer into the back seat and expertly folded the wheelchair into the trunk. Cassie threw a final look over her shoulder at Brennan before joining her pap in the back seat. The limo's tires crunched over the gravel pathway, winding around neglected headstones and crumbling crypts, none nearly as grand or well-maintained as the Dolans. Ryan and Beck McConnell led the funeral parade in a limo of their own. A flotilla of luxury cars snaked through the cemetery's wrought iron gate and onto the city street, passing the row of humbler parked vehicles and their owners. While the photographer's lens clicked at a furious rate, Brandon imagined he saw Cassie's head turn as if she were staring at him through the limo's darkly tinted window. Or maybe it was Dolan. Their shadowy silhouettes blurred into one shapeless soul. His phone buzzed. Pap wants you to come. He groaned and shoved the phone in his pocket. The matter was settled. Nobody refuses Leland Dolan. Brennan was attending the wake. Chapter 7 Brennan hoofed it after gridlock forced him to park ten city blocks from Dolan Mansion. He arrived at the narrow stone street to find a valet directing a seemingly endless stream of limos to disgorge their well-heeled passengers and then keep moving to a designated parking area on the fringe of Society Hill. What a difference a week and a large dose of unwelcome attention make. Brennan shook his head at the striking transformation. The day Aaron Dolan had died, thunder rolled and low-hanging clouds skimmed the historic neighborhood's brick chimneys. Then Dolan Mansion had stood as stern and foreboding as its elderly namesake. Sheets of rain streamed from its steep slate roof, and if not for the gentle flicker of light through the transom, the house would have disappeared behind a hazy film of gray, like an overdeveloped photo on an underlit day. Today the mansion blazed brighter than the Fargo Center on a hockey night. Orange, green, and red light glared through three stories of stained glass. Muted strains of funereal music escaped into the frigid air with each whoosh of the door, its brass knob polished to a brilliant sheen. Matching boxwood topiaries, pruned to perfection, flanked the entry. Only one window high on the third floor clung to its morose mood, its dark glass unaffected by the drama below. He merged with a group of blue-haired ladies, but was stopped on the threshold. May I have your name, please, sir? The tuxedo doorman grasped his leather-wrapped clipboard like a matron clutching her pearls. He was not on the list. Of that, Brennan was certain. He contemplated flashing his badge, but opted for discretion instead. Dan Brennan. While the doorman flipped and frowned, Brennan peeked through the sidelights. Scores of guests filled the foyer and library. They chatted in hushed tones, many sipping from tiny porcelain cups while others lingered over trays of tea sandwiches and hot hors d'oeuvres. Dolan sat in the back of the room next to the fireplace, his gaunt frame enveloped in an oversized vintage chair with nail-head trim, its supple, worn leather as weathered as he. Cassie stood guard at his right elbow, her face a tight mask, but her eyes alert as always. 
Her gaze met Brannon's immediately as if she'd been watching the door and awaiting his presence. She leaned to whisper something in Dolan's ear and he nodded. I'm sorry, sir. The doorman gave his papers a final shuffle. You're not on the list. Brennan feigned surprise. Really? I was invited by Mr. Dolan himself. He stretched his right arm overhead and waved across the crowded room at Dolan. The old man responded with a slow wave of his own, gesturing Brennan in. The doorman hemmed and hawed. Dr. McConnell was very explicit about sticking to the list, but I guess if Mr. Dolan says so. He says so. It's his house, you know. Brennan brushed past, weaving a path through the congested, overly warm room. A dozen different exotic perfumes and clones swirled into one nauseating scent, and the heat increased as he approached the roaring fire. He tugged at his coat buttons, suddenly grateful he'd remember to iron his shirt and wear dress shoes. A waiter bearing a tray laden with exotic pastries cut into his path. A suffocating throng eager for their share instantly formed. Brennan squared his shoulders for some heavy contact. Before he could steamroll through, his phone vibrated with a text. He glanced at the sender and raised his eyebrows. Pete must have marked the lab order as urgent. This was fast service even for an old friend. Prelim talk screen, positive for benzos and barbs. Check email, full report in two to three weeks. Brennan's stubby fingers tapped to reply. Got it, thanks. He crammed the phone in his pocket and, sensing a favorable shift in the herd ahead, elbowed a path to Leland Dolan. Even the mourners kept their distance from the intimidating old man. As Brennan broke through the crowd and covered the short gap to the fireplace, Dolan extended a veiny hand. Detective Brennan, wasn't it? Brennan nodded. A trickle of sweat ran down his back. Yes, sir. Thank you for coming, although I suppose now you'll want to poke round the place. It's your granddaughter's wake, Mr. Dolan. I can do that another time. Besides, I don't have a warrant. You don't need one. You have my permission to scour the entire house if you want. We have nothing to hide. He patted Cassie's arm. Do we, Peach? A shrill giggle pierced the muted murmurs of conversation. In unison, the guests turned their heads to the front of the room where, framed by the colorful lead glass windows, a young blonde stood too close to Ryan McConnell. She brushed her fingertips over his forearm. He scowled and took a broad step back. With the pout of her glossy pink lips, she huffed away. Dolan's murderous glare could have scared a drunk dry and turned a serial killer into a saint. Cassie's expression was only slightly less hostile. The old man gripped the frame of his leather chair and struggled to stand. How dare he? How dare he invite her to my granddaughter's funeral? I'll... His chest shook as a coughing fit rendered him mute and breathless. Wheezing, he collapsed into the plush seat. The coughing attracted Ryan's attention. His eyes narrowed as he observed Brennan's presence, and he turned his back to accept the fawning attention of the nearest guest. Brennan smiled wryly. I'd say your grandson-in-law isn't happy to see me. He can go shit in his hat. Dolan patted his blue lips with a fine linen handkerchief. Give the detective a tour, Peach. Show him everything he needs to see. His milky eyes met hers. And nothing he doesn't. I can't believe Brennan is humoring Cassie and Leland. I'd be really hesitant to explore that creepy mansion. What do you think he'll find? And just who, or what, is Ruth? 
Stay tuned to find out. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to The Photo Thief now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped, a serialized podcast. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books, including interviews with the authors, editors, and other industry professionals. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.